We're going to talk today about doing work for God and what he's doing in the world. And we're going to look at this uh, a story of good and bad and ugly. And before we do that, I want to take just a look at some of these questions I have for you. And I'd like to take just a moment and answer these questions. Now notice the area of these little questions that I have at the top, those six questions, has about this much space to write. It's not, these are not, you know, don't turn over your page and like write an essay here. Um, you don't need to dictate to Siri about things to try to get it in there. Don't worry about all that stuff. Um, but take a moment and think about these questions. We're going to take about five minutes, just short. Look at the questions and answer them. Uh, Roy, would you mind pulling up just a nice song for us? While everybody's taking a second to look at these questions. And let's answer them, all six. Write down your answers. And then we'll come to the word together. For the sake of our people who are listening in on Facebook, can't be here with us today. We love you and appreciate that you're watching. Here are the questions. What do you pray for most? What thought, need, or worry keeps you awake at night? If you could accomplish one thing for God's glory, what would it be? How much time do you think that he'll give you to do it? Is your life on track to accomplish that one thing? What do you spend most of your time doing? Two more minutes.
Praise the Lord. Simple, easy questions, right? Things you think about all the time. No problem. Simple and easy. Um, do we have a volunteer who would like to answer number uh, five for us? No, I'm kidding. I'm just joking. <laughs> this is for you for your own reflection. The ushers are not going to collect it. There's no grading of your quiz. It's not like that. It's not a quiz. Let's look in the Bible together at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 15. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. This is one of my most favorite passages in the Bible. It's about Jesus. Let's read it together. We read it often, and it's wonderful. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's a bunch in the back table, FYI. Here's what it says. He, that's Christ Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Praise Jesus. I used to have a uh, military leader who was pretty high up, and he was, had been in the army for like 30 years. And he used to say, when you hear the Star Spangled Banner, when you hear our national anthem and you see the flag wave, if you don't feel anything, you need to get out of uniform. If you don't feel anything, get out. And this passage is kind of like that, where you read this about Jesus. And if you don't feel anything, you need to check whether your spiritual pulse is beating. This doesn't mean get out, by the way. That's not the message here. Okay, don't run out of the church meeting. But when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about the glorious God, the king of the whole earth, who by his very word is upholding all things, whose power is limitless and beyond our comprehension, the God who at this very moment is causing our earth to rotate and also filling your lungs with breath. The God who at this very moment is receiving and dealing with and ruling on the prayers of the saints around the world simultaneously and is causing babies to be formed in their mother's womb. The God who at this very moment is causing all life to occur and happen and who is upholding the nations by his power. This is the God we serve. And this is the Jesus who became a man, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, always God, who became a person on our behalf. That's why the Bible says here, the image of God was pleased to fully dwell in him. He, it's God. It's him. It's the one who's doing all those grandiose things, who also comes to earth as a man and actually sweats and actually maybe has body odor, perhaps. I don't know for sure. But he had to eat. He probably had to go potty. He's a, he was a person. Actually, really a man. Actually, really tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin actually really had to love his parents, obey, submit, all those things. Can you imagine Jesus going through puberty? Jesus, I mean, he was really a person. He is really a person. He's alive. And the God we serve is this Jesus Christ. 
He's our great king, and he's forever seated on the throne. He's so high above. He's so perfect in his rule. He's so wonderful in everything that he does. And he's our great motivation. He's our great source of life. He's everything to us. And it's so funny how we can get so distracted from the grand nature of who he is and how perfect and mighty he is and look at all the things that start to fill our mind and that fill this page and that keep us up at night. And you know what? Some of those things that you wrote down are very, very important, massive, meaningful, big things. It's not that those things aren't important. It's just that he's so big. And it's so funny how we can get distracted in a moment's notice from the glorious king to the junk on the earth. Isn't that funny? That's a funny thing. I am ever more convinced that God is active, ruling and reigning, using his people, using us, that he has great and grand plans in keeping with his nature, that he is doing amazing, incredible things on the earth as he has been doing forever, and that he is going to use you individually for all his plans. And because of that, because he's so big, and sometimes we get distracted with things that are so small, I've been praying and asking the Lord, how do I help us? How do I motivate us? How do I keep us moving toward God and not just fall into the trap of, of trying to make people feel better? Because it's a lot easier. It's nice when everybody leaves the church building feeling great and built up and happy. That's a great, that makes for good weeks. It's harder to say, let's do something for God because that's the moment when all the challenges meet, isn't it? Have you ever tried? You're like, I'm gonna, today I'm going to tell somebody about Jesus. And the next thing you know, man, the attitudes come and you get the worst cart at the stupid grocery store and your children are screaming and crying and nothing is going right and the car door breaks. How's a car door break? Why won't it lock? I don't understand. And now suddenly you've made a commitment. I'm going to do something for God today. And suddenly you're so sidetracked by the time your spouse gets home, you're just, blah, this attitude just pours out of you. You know what I'm talking about? That's real, isn't it? It would be a lot better just to close our eyes and let everything be good and happy and not try to do things for God and not worry about challenges coming. I used to, some of you know John Opingator, who's a friend of ours from a church we've worked with for a long time in Kenosha. He came uh, down and did a training program with us. And he used to play bass, uh, guitar in the worship team. And I remember he had this big sticker on his guitar that said, I'm the Christian the devil warned you about. <laughs> and I always liked that. I always thought, you know, that's... I'm the Christian the devil warned you about. You know, that's, that's pretty, that's bold. But when you put that into practice, though, man, it gets, it gets interesting, doesn't it? So how do, I, how do I motivate us? And I'm praying and I'm asking the Lord, what do I do? And the Lord's answer is just Jesus. It's always Jesus. It's always him. If your eyes are fixed on Jesus, if you are seeking after God, everything else clicks into place. Jesus said it this way, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. You know, it's interesting, I, was, I thought about writing a little thing on this because people are so lost in it. I was talking to somebody, Lisa was talking to a friend who's trying to find a church. And nothing, they've been around to all these churches and they're looking and they can't find one that's, you know, really good and they're just complaining because there's no real community anywhere. There's no genuine community. You know, and okay, that's, maybe that's true. Um, here's the problem. If you're seeking the perfect church, you're never going to find it. But if you're seeking Jesus and you're seeking God, you will feel him knit you into a church because where he wants you is more important than what you want. 
And that's the key. You know, every person who comes to this church and every person who leaves this church, I sell them the same thing. And that thing is, you need to be a part of a body where God puts you. Period. That's it. you got to be where God puts you. And yet we find ourselves searching all this stuff for what is our, what's going to fulfill me? What will make me feel better? And I'm telling you from the word of God, it never works that way because he is reconciling to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That includes you and your will, which means we submit to him. And for his glory, we do whatever he wants. So how do we motivate ourselves to go out there and do something for God, knowing it might be hard, knowing that maybe all the things we want all the time don't always happen? And the answer is, do you see him? Do we know Jesus? Are we seeking him? Or are we just seeking doing the stuff? Are we seeking whatever success looks like? Because it has different definitions everywhere. Or are we actually seeking Christ? That our hearts are pulled toward his glory. That everything we do is for him. And we have a singular focus that he would be glorified on the earth. And that looks like my family. And it looks like my business. And it looks like everything I do glorifying Jesus. And it affects everybody around me. Because when we come together... It means that we're all doing it together. We're all seeking him together. Oh, it's, it's awesome, isn't it? That's what we do. Praise God. Let's look at somebody who didn't do that well. Just because it will help us. Turn your Bible, please. Joshua 7. Joshua chapter 7. I'm going to go through this story fast for the sake of time. You can read it on your own. This is Achan's sin. It's a famous passage. Joshua chapter 7. Here's what's happening in Joshua. Um, Moses has died, and the people of Israel have come out of captivity and slavery in Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert. One of the generation, that generation that came out of Egypt was unfaithful, and God said, you're going to wander until you all die. I'll take your children, and we'll come into the promised land. When I say promised land, God had told their forefathers, specifically somebody named Abraham, that they would get to come back to this land of which he was in, and it would be their land. That's where his people would be. God's intention in all this was not to make an isolated people who would never talk to the world uh, or do anything. That was not the intention, that they would just be kind of away and unaffected by the evil world. God's intention was that they would be the beacon of hope, that they would be the place of God's law, that they would be the, the resting place of God's own testimony and presence so that everybody who came to them would say, God is surely here and stay and become a part and know their creator and walk in his way. That was always the intention. And it totally gets messed up right from the beginning, which we're going to see. But the, there's a problem. As they're coming into this promised land, there are people groups who are already living there. And God, because he's God, is giving this land and all the buildings and all the crops and all the everything to the Israelites, which means displacing all the people who are there. And the Lord in his holiness, because he's holy, and in his standard has judged the people that are there and said, they are so wicked, I'm going to wipe them out. Now, that's hard for us to hear because it does not sound like the loving God we always talk about. But there's a purpose to it, so understand. We'll talk about that a little bit. And so God has told the Israelites, go in, take over the land. I will fight on your behalf. Wipe out everybody. These places and everything they have are devoted to destruction. Don't touch it. Don't mess with it. Destroy it. Everything. Gold, silver, flocks, everything. Destroy it. It is, it is horrible to you. I don't want you to touch it. If you bring it back, 
you will bring that same devoted of destruction mentality to yourself. So stay away from it. And so the first place we see this is Jericho. And we all know from Sunday school, you know, Joshua won the battle of Jericho. And Jericho had these amazing walls. It was impenetrable, a fortress of a city. And God tells the people of Israel, just march around it seven days. They march around, march around, march around, march around, sound the horn. And all this time, think for seven days, the people of Jericho, who have heard of the God who defeated Egypt, the greatest empire in the world to that time, they know who God is. They heard about it from their grandparents, their parents. They know. And they say, our walls are thick enough. We're good. And for seven days, God gives them the opportunity to repent. And they don't. And on the seventh day, the trumpet sounds, the walls crash in on the people, and everybody's utterly destroyed. And when this happens, a guy named Achan, who's an Israelite, runs in, and he's part of the army who's taking over this town. And he finds in this town some riches, and he desires them. They're about a year's, or excuse me, they're about a lifetime's fortune, roughly. So he finds this silver kind of garment and gold, like a block of gold, and he wants it. It's a lifetime's fortune. And instead of leaving it there in the rubble and burning it with fire like they're supposed to do, he decides to take it. He brings it back to his tent, because the people are wandering in tents still at this time, and he buries it in the ground under his tent. So right after that, the Lord tells the people, go to this town called Ai, A-I, go, to, go out to Ai, take it over. And it's just a little tiny thing. They've seen Jericho, the impenetrable fortress, fall by God's grace. And so they say, hey, this will be easy for us. We're not going to send the whole army. Just send a couple thousand guys. No big deal. So instead of sending 30,000 soldiers, let's just send like 2,000 or 3,000. We'll take over this thing. We saw what God did. No problem. And so they go up to this little place, and immediately they're defeated in battle. And the word says that 36 of their number fell. And they're shocked. What happened? And so they come back, and they're lamenting. Let's start reading in Joshua 7, verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord. That's like the throne of God. Until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would it be that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut us off and cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. Think of that for a minute. The people of God, because they took something, they themselves have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, you uh, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. 
In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who has taken the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel." So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he was brought near household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmen, of Carmi, son of Zebdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, he was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, Give glory to the Lord your God and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, it's a lot of money, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and his sheep and his, and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and the stones and stoned them with the stones. They raised over them a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned away his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, which means trouble, the Valley of Trouble. Oh, Achan. What a sad story. Isn't it sad? I was thinking about some things for you good Bible students. I'm going to rattle off a bunch of things. If you don't know these stories, it's okay. We'll talk about them another time. But for you Bible students who know your Bible, think about just this little list. Abel's blood cries out to God. Noah's salvation reveals God's wrath, global wrath on sin. Sodom and Gomorrah leads to total destruction, and just looking back leads to absolute loss of your life. Your body even turns to salt. Egypt reveals God's wrath. They had raised up other gods and said, these are our gods. They are powerful over all things. And the Lord sends plagues that challenges all their gods and puts them in their place and utterly destroys their economy, their lives, utterly destroys Egypt. Sinai... God gives the law, but also the people perform a golden calf that they then worship and say, this is what brought us out of, out of Egypt. This is our God that has saved us. And the Lord responds with a terrible plague that wipes out thousands of his own people because his anger is burning against the people who would attribute his glory to some other kind of God or, or idol. Moses decides in himself that he will say something that God didn't tell him to say in a way that God didn't tell him to. And he himself is barred from going into the promised land and dealt with what we feel so, oh, that's so harsh. 
Here's this guy who's faithfully led, and just because he says something wrong, he's not allowed to enter into all the promises of God? Yes. Achan's sin leads to military defeat, and the sin is utterly exposed. How would you like it if we come to church and somebody has a word of knowledge? Someone here has done something. I can see it. It's a sin. It's affecting us. We're going to draw lots by each family, and we'll figure out who it is. Okay? And they start. And there's millions of, of Israelites, you understand. So they start with the millions. Let's just divide it into the 12 tribes. We'll figure out which tribe it is. Oh, it's Judah. And it comes down to a man. So here's Achan and his family standing with all the other heads of the family. And he gets the lot. Now, we don't know exactly what that looked like. Uh, usually when we talk about lots, there were different ways of kind of yes or no things that would happen. But imagine for a moment you're drawing straws. It's the easiest way for us to think about it. And so, hey, draw the straw. And so here comes the guy. Draw a straw, draw a straw, draw a straw. And it hits Achan. And he pulls it out. He's got the short straw. It's him. And he doesn't say, no. What does he say? First thing, I've sinned. He's utterly found out. Well, surely the shame would be enough. The shame of being exposed. If he just gives it back, if he just burns the stuff, it'll be fine. It's not fine. There's 36 families wailing because their sons didn't come home from the battle. Achan's sin, you can see here, I'm skipping ahead just a little bit, but Achan's sin's affected. There's three things. It affected himself. He's wrong. He's guilty. But it affected his whole family. Culpable in it. Dad, what are you doing? I'm burying something. Don't worry about it. Dad, what are you doing? I'm just burying something. It looks pretty. Don't worry about it. They knew. It's the, they all live in one tent together. What's, why is, what happened here? I buried something. They, they knew. So God's not unjust in just killing children. Please understand. They knew what was going on. It affects his whole family. It affects his whole tribe. Everybody around him. The third thing it affects here Himself, his family, the whole people, the community is affected. The sin that's come in now, one thing, stealing, lying, one guy, one out of a couple million people, takes something from one place, and suddenly God removes all his blessing from the people. That's incredible, isn't it? It's scary to think about. The judges, the time of judges before David becomes king that's going to follow this later. It's a bloody time. Look at David's own sin. We talked about David last week. Mike had a great word for us. And David sins with Bathsheba. What happens? The child dies. Later on, Solomon becomes king, all those things. Sure, but man, this story, the Bible, the word, we see over and over and over again. God is not to be trifled with. He is much bigger than we expect. He is much huger and how he looks at things, that's even a word. His ways are not our ways. He is much grander than us. When I think about those things and about how God holds people accountable, I, it, it, fear is the right emotion. You know, the Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's, that's interesting because it's not the knowledge of God. It's not the love of God. It's not the hand of God. It's the fear of God. Why is that? It's because we puff ourselves up in pride. I know. Have you ever talked to somebody in college? They know everything. I did when I was in college. I knew everything. 
You could, I had a class on that. I don't need your, I got it. I'm fine. I know everything. I'm in college. That's how, that's how people are like that, though, aren't they? You have to get my, my daughter. My daughter's playing basketball right now, third grade basketball. And she's as cute as a button, guys. She's, she's doing so great. I'm so proud of her. And she's in that phase where she's like, I really want to play, but I don't want to touch the ball. But okay, throw it to me. Oh, I got it. You know, uh, throw it to you. You know, she's, it's third grade. It's, so, it's wonderful to watch. And it's really cute to see how she's growing in it. But she has not scored a basket yet. She will. We're excited. We're going to cheer so loud when she does. It's going to be great. And she's, the other day, she ran twice, like dribbling. Like, yes. I mean, she's like, it's, it's going great. But we get in the car after the game, and she's like, hey, Benjamin, it's her, her uh, six-year-old brother. Hey, Benjamin, someday you'll be good at sports like me. <laughs> you know, like, someday when you play basketball, I'll teach you everything I know since uh, we won this game. She scored no baskets. We totally won and uh, just destroyed them, so. <sighs> We're three, three, and one. You know, but it's, it's, that's human nature, isn't it? And we see it all the time. And this pride puffs up. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As we come to the scripture, I read this story for us because sometimes our gospel is too small. It's too small. And we are inundated all the time with a gospel that basically is just solving our problems. That basically is that the money that Achan would have received, that can come to you if you just pray enough. That somehow all of your problems are going to be solved. And then once everything is comfortable for you and you're feeling good and you have enough of a nest egg and there's enough saved up and you, know, you feel enough respect, then you can do something for God. And on that day, man, that's going to be a glorious day. So one day, I'll get there. But today, i got to pay bills. And that becomes sort of this gospel message of just God meeting our needs. And it's totally contrary to the God that we are introduced to here, who is all about his own glory, his own might, his own mission, his own way. And the people who are coming against him, he does not take lightly. Achan becomes a traitor in their midst, devoted himself to destruction. Because of the sin of one guy, the Lord has taken all of his testimony up to that point and said, very well, I will depart from you and turn you over to destruction. That's amazing. Because this is the covenantal faithful God who never forgets, who has literally moved heaven and earth, who himself has shown his power to all the Egyptians. Remember Joshua's prayer. He said, Lord, if you, if you don't save us here, what will happen to your great name? And he's willing to risk it all because he believes so much in the covenant. And you will come up to my standard, is what God says. But man, we don't want that. We want to keep that standard as low as possible and just sort of let grace cover us and it will be okay. And here's the reality is if we can't see God for who he is, if we don't see God in the grandeur of all he's done, then we're not going to be motivated to do anything for him because he's just a genie who solves our problems. And it's not true. And then years passed and we're wondering, why haven't I done anything for God? Why hasn't he done anything for me? And the problem is our priorities are all mixed up. The wisdom is not there because we didn't start with the fear of God. Isn't it funny now? And I, I tell people too, so if you say this, it's okay. But we've led so often with Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. The first thing we say in evangelism, I don't really, the truth is, God is 
tolerating you right now. You're against him. He's against you. You need to fall on your face before him. If you just knew Jesus, let me tell you about Jesus. It's a better gospel, isn't it? Let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus is the only God who has seen all this happen, who looks down on Achan's sin, who has orchestrated and by the word of his power has thrown down the Egyptians. He is the one who has brought the people out of their slavery. He's given them all the provision they need. He has filled their bellies with manna. He's filled their bellies with quail. He has kept water coming from rocks. He has led them in pillars of cloud and pillars of fire. It's the same God who has done all those things. And now who's defeated Jericho, who's leading his people, it's the same God who has seen Achan's sin, who will come down to a people who do not deserve him. It's the same God who has already made a plan with the Father, somehow in the mystery of the Trinity, decided that they are going to come, that they are going to indwell this situation, and that they will come down, and that they will pay the whole price. Because here's what Jesus does. Jesus, who is our God, he becomes a man on our behalf of the same tribe of this guy, a a descendant, a cousin of Achan, who will come down. And he will bear the iniquity for a people who have turned against him. He will come down, and just like Achan was taken by Lot because God is much smarter than us, Out of two million people, Achan is chosen. From the foundations of time, the son was chosen. That he would be the one who would bear the iniquity of all the Achans. Of all the ones who had put first their own desires. Of all the ones who had not bowed the knee to God. Of all the ones who thought that they could just transgress the covenant and it wouldn't matter. Of all the ones who just sort of trusted God's mercy but didn't fear his power. And so he came down, this distant cousin. He was born the creator of the world as a baby who was dependent on Mary's milk to live, humbling himself to the point of being a servant and knowing trust in the Father because as a baby, he was upholding all things by the word of his power. And at the same time, if Mary dropped him, it would really hurt him. How incredible is that? He grew up and experienced every temptation that we have, yet without sin. His attitude was perfect in all things. He was always true to the Father. He was always true to the law. He embodied everything that God had ever said that he should do because he was the Word embodied. Living a perfect life, he decided and set his face like flint that he would go into Jerusalem where his own people and the leaders of his own chosen nation would put him to death and cry out for his crucifixion. He went to that place knowing that he would be chosen as the traitor who would die, and the real traitor, Barabbas, would be set free. And as a substitution for all the people, he would stand in front of them and take all the punishment for sin that exists in the world. In other words, Jesus Christ, who's God forever and yet fully man, would take all the wrath of God for all, all of our transgressions. Imagine what happens here to Achan. His whole family affected. The whole community affected. And what do they do to him? The whole community comes out and throws stones on him until he dies and burns him with fire. It's terrible, isn't it? Such that it's a heap that people can notice for generations. That's a lot of stones. That's a lot of stones. 
and they heap it upon him so that they, everyone around would know his shame and know God's anger. God is angry. And it turns away God's anger from the people, doesn't it? And here's Jesus, stripped naked, laid bare, thorns in his head, bleeding from everywhere, back beaten to a pulp, blood everywhere, just a shell of a man, hanging in shame to die the traitor's death. He who knew no betrayal was dying as one who had betrayed. And he really died for us. And yet what was happening spiritually was all the anger that God had on sin, on our betrayal, was put onto Jesus Christ with the, the wrath of God poured into one place. And it looks like all those times in the Bible, it looks like all those times when people betrayed or walked away from God or sinned, and God lashes out in anger upon them. It looks like the destruction of whole towns. It looks like Jericho's wall falling down. What person could contain that? Nobody can, except for Jesus. He's the only one. And the gospel is not just that he's going to provide our needs. The gospel is not just that he'll fill our hearts with love. The gospel is not just that he's going to make us friends and we're going to love each other and it's going to be a great world. The gospel is that he fulfilled the legal betrayal and the charge of traitor that was upon you and me. Every one of us was destined for this death. Every one of us was destined that our whole families, our whole community, everything we love, we betrayed God for something else. And Jesus Christ took all of the punishment for us. That instead, when he rises to life and defeats sin and death by faith, we rise with him. And now instead of brand of traitor upon us, instead of the derision of Achan that's on our lives, instead we stand in his family line, made perfect like him. And we're not perfect yet. We're getting there. He's making us look more like Christ every day, that we'll live with him forever. But this God... He's put his own perfect righteousness in us. That when God looks at you, he does not see any more betrayer of the covenant. But he sees faithful one who took all the punishment. When he looks at you, he sees Christ's righteousness. How incredible is that? How incredible is it that God himself would stand in the place like Achan, taking that punishment for us, that we could be called sons of God? It's amazing. Sometimes our gospel is too small. It's too small because we think, man, if God really loved me, he would just answer my prayers today. He would just do these things for me. He would just help me. And the reality is, he has legally freed you from sin. He's delivered you from slavery. He's brought you, adopted into his own family. He's put his name on you. He's put his righteousness on you. He's changed everything for all time, forever, because he is the one who took the punishment for us. How is Christ's gospel the answer for sin? It's the answer because there's no way, there's no punishment we could take that would make it okay. Only Jesus, only him. He's the only unique person in the history of the world ever who could do this for us. And so Jesus Christ is the only answer for sin. I skipped earlier this question. It says, our God is utterly, the answer is glorious. He's utterly glorious. And his glory is demonstrated in how he 
interacts with people. It's also demonstrated in the plan that he has to save them. And the glory of Jesus Christ is so high above. It's so perfect in all his ways that it causes everything else to pale in comparison. It changes who we are. It changes how we operate. It changes what we think. Because if our eyes are fixed on him and his glory and glorifying him who lives forever, it just, there's no other motivation in life. Suddenly, everything else changes. We, you know, you can work your whole life to give your children an inheritance. That would be wonderful. Wouldn't that be great? And in one stock market crash, lose it all. Your whole life. And it's so funny, you know, the, I've seen a bunch of these memes going around with uh, Kobe Bryant, God bless his family. What a horrible tragedy for, to lose anybody. But, you know, this, you know, beloved by a lot of people, hated by some. You know, but to lose your daughter as well, and oh, it's awful. But I've seen all these memes going around, and one of them had a picture of Kobe Bryant, and it said, the one thing we assumed was that we had time. The one thing we assumed was that we had time. My challenge for us today is, is the glory of Christ enough? Is he enough for us to do something for him today? Or do we need to have everything perfect before we can accomplish things for him? Is he enough that we can just live for him? Or are the benefits of who he is and his rule what we really need before we can really honor Jesus? My last question for you is, what will you do for Christ today? The devil is deceiving you by telling you that you need to get everything straight or that he's going to get everything straight before you can do things for God. The reality is, as you walk into who he is, as you search him, search for him, as you seek him, as you love him, as you, as you dive into the scriptures, as you open your heart to him, as the Holy Spirit exposes areas of sin that you didn't even realize and you repent and you walk forward and you tell other people about him and you just live who you are. Stop pretending. Nobody cares who we are on Facebook anymore. They don't. It doesn't last. You know, I'm Facebook friends with like five dead people. They just keep, hey, it's their birthday. And I'm like, oh, that's sad. It doesn't last. But we have this fake inclination that your digital record is going to outlive you and somehow make you special. It doesn't, it doesn't last. The inheritance we give to our children is not gold and silver. It's a spiritual inheritance of obeying, following, showing, discipleship, do you see Jesus? If they see him with us, then we carry on. Isn't it incredible? That's the God that we serve. So what can you do for him today? What are you willing and ready to do to glorify Jesus now, knowing you're not perfect, knowing you don't have everything ready to go, knowing you are crying out, Lord, I don't have the money. I don't have the patience. I don't have the time. I need you. But knowing how glorious he is, and that if he is willing to stand in our midst, if he's willing to be our substitute to take all the punishment for sin, as we seek him, his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added. Amen? Here's what Colossians goes on to say. Paul says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He has not left on you the derision of Achan. 
but instead is presenting you holy and blameless. What a great God we serve. Let me pray for you. Raise your hands and receive a blessing. Father, thank you. Thank you that you're with us. May you here now know the rich deposit of his word in your heart and mind. Know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. May you know the wisdom of God in all things. May you know the absolute calling of the Father. May you know the righteousness of the Son. And may you know the power of the Holy Spirit who is at work in you to give glory to Jesus. Amen. Be blessed.